Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. The scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 1, uh, 7 through 14. We'll start off in verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for another gift and another opportunity to slow our lives, to pause our lives in reflection upon your promises and your word. God, far too often we live without you. Though you never depart from us as your children, we can easily live apart from you and your promises and your truths. And so, God, may that not be so as much in our lives because of moments like this where we where we re-encounter you in truth, where we hear from you. And we're just reminded that what we were created for, like Adam in the garden, God, is what life is all about, just walking with you and knowing you closely. And so we ask today, God, that your voice, you, you would be so near, as near as your voice speaking to us through your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your promises. That's just what we're banking on right now. Um, We're not here to gather around the wisdom of a man or his sermon. We're here to gather around you, Jesus. We're here for you. So with that, we just say, Jesus, have your way. Work in our lives. Work in this time. Speak to us, God. That's what we pray, that you would speak to us through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, we are uh, we're trucking along here through the book of Ephesians. Um, the book of Ephesians. It's it's ironic. It's kind of funny that we called the book of Ephesians this New Testament letter that Paul wrote to one of the early churches. It, it's been called like the mountain peak of one of the mountain peaks of the mountain range of Scripture. Um, I just got back from the great Asheville, North Carolina with the family. That was an, an awesome experience. Pulling in is something also foreign to my Florida eyes. To pull into, you kind of know you're there because all of a sudden on the horizon, you see something other than a cruise ship, you know? You're like, where am I, you know? Um, where's the Goodyear blimp, you know? <laughs> like, what is this place? And you have this just beautiful view of mountain ranges, the Appalachian Mountains for miles and miles and and we said that the book of Ephesians is like a mountain, is, is, if scripture is like a mountain range, Ephesians is like this peak of the scriptures, this beautiful height of, of 
Pauline and, and biblical um, exposition and writing that Paul writes to this early church. And that's, I think, also an appropriate title because we're taking the scenic route through Ephesians, okay? We're not, we're not just finding the, the, the fastest shortcut and detour to get through this book. We're, we're slowing our pace. That's something that I experienced in the mountains as well, is uh, driving is just not, like everything here is just like A to B with a couple rights and lefts, but it's, it's winding roads everywhere you go up there, and there's, there's parts where you can pull off the road and get, a view, get the nice view of, of the mountain range and the valley below, and so that's kind of what we're doing through Ephesians. This is not Boca driving, praise God. This is this is, praise God, Jimmy, that's Jimmy's favorite phrase, praise God. Um, this, is, this is the winding roads of this mountain peak as we are exploring all the beauty of this incredible book. Here's the title of our series, To the Faithful Ones, To the Faithful Ones. The great Apostle Paul is writing this letter as, as you know, definitely Apostle Paul, but kind of like Pastor Paul. He's pastoring this church, and he's calling them to a life of faithfulness, which we said last week is is sort of a rare thing in this day and age. A lot of giftedness, a lot of zeal, a lot of passion. But scripture says, who can find a faithful man? I mean, really what, what the Christian life is all about is remaining in what's true. It's about faithfulness to what we know. It's about faithfulness to stay in Christ. And that's Paul's passion for this church, calling them to be faithful in Jesus. It's one of the it's kind of, I think, maybe why it's one of our favorite epistles. It's, it's one of the only epistles that, that's not written as a rebuke. Like, that's most of the time. Like, when people are like, I don't like that church. It's, like, messy, and the Christians are imperfect. It's like, yeah, but that's the Bible, pretty much. Most of the churches that Paul writes to is filled with humans that, that have a tendency to, to mess things up. And, and often the, the letters are written to be like, hey, come back to center. Come back to Jesus. But Ephesians is like super encouraging because it's not a book that's written in rebuke. It's, it's primarily written as an encouragement to faithful people that Paul is calling into greater faithfulness. That's the vision that he casts over them. And I want to say that's the vision that I want to cast over our lives in this series. Like who are we going to be as a church in 10, 20 years? Listen, when faithfulness to Jesus is going to be tested. Have you noticed that, by the way, faithfulness to Jesus gets tested? If not by the culture, by your own flesh, uh, by, by your own enemy. And so we want to cast a vision to be a people that remain faithful. And here's the big phrase, faithful in Christ. Now, this might just look like a simple preposition, a little simple two-word phrase that I have up here on the screen. But this is Paul's favorite phrase. This is his favorite thing to say. We, we talk today in the church a lot about living for Christ, and, and the Bible speaks to that. Paul will speak to that. But Ephesians is all about what it means, this key preposition, to live in Christ. Jesus is not some, just someone up there to live for, but someone here and now to live in, to live in him. It's used over 100 times in Paul's epistles, and in the section that we just read, actually verses 3 through 14, we just read 7 through 14, but verses 3 through 14, uh, this phrase, in Christ, is used 10 times. That's incredible. 10 times. Now, I want to say this. Not only in a couple verses, but one sentence. This is something really interesting about the section we're looking at. Verses 3 through 14 in this letter that Paul is writing. Verses, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In the original Greek language, this is one single, long, run-on sentence. This is what Paul is doing here. 
These are, what is it, about 11 verses where Paul is not stopping. He, he is, I said he's Pastor Paul, but he's sort of hip-hop Paul. He's got some bars here in this section. And he is just like building on this theology of Jesus and what it means to be in him. So much so that he's like, now, if you say something 10 times in one sentence, you're showing what's important to you, right? 10 times, I don't think I've ever said anything. I don't even know how to do that, say something 10 times in one sentence. But Paul did it, okay? 10 times in this section, he's emphasizing life in Christ, in Christ. This is so important. I, th I think it's, it's this idea, too. Um, in Ephesians, let me kind of unpack this a little bit more. You, you have a helpful division between two verb moods. We're talking about verb moods this morning at church. You have imperatives and indicatives. With the verb move of, of, of imperatives, what you have there is you have verbs that, that, that connotate a command, the sense of urgency and action. Uh, actually, chapters 4 through 6 makes up a lot of that, a lot of imperatives. This is how you're to walk. This is how you're to live. But what's amazing about the book of Ephesians is Paul takes a pretty long time to get to imperatives. This is foreign to a lot of us who we think the Christian faith and that God is just all about what I need to do. That's how we think. You come to church and you're like, here, God's, I haven't been doing the good things. I'm coming to church and God's telling me to, that I'm doing the bad things. I need to do the right things. And we can just kind of have this like law um, enforcing mindset and view of a God in heaven who's always angry at us for never doing enough. And we can think the Bible is just this big, books of, this big book of do's and don'ts and rules. And I love that Paul's like, I'm going to take three whole chapters. I'm going to spend a whole sentence, actually, even on this. And before rushing to what you need to do, I'm just going to spend some time, instead of on imperatives, I'm going to spend some time on indicatives. Now, indicatives, that verb mood, which is what you have in chapters 1 through 3, it simply represents statements of fact, realities, things of actuality. And that, listen, that is all that Paul wants us to, to really live in, even this morning. Always, I mean, our whole lives are comprised of this. It's not even just spiritual, but it's like our whole lives just get so caught up in doing. You ever been there? And we become human doings rather than human beings. We're just so forced into this mindset in our culture. It's fast-paced. There's things to do. There's, there's, there's deadlines to meet. And we can think that way with God. And like the Apostle Paul says, come to church on a Sunday morning. Stop what you're doing and just be for a minute. Get your mind off of what you've done and what you need to do. And let the gospel of Jesus saturate your soul with the good news of what Jesus has done. The good news of what he has. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. That's what Paul's trying to get at. He's trying to get this church rooted in the proper order. It's not that we have to do all these things to arrive at some place. No, no, no. The Christian faith is all about living from what's been accomplished through Jesus, right? It's about living from the gospel. Not living towards some place of favor with God, but saturating our minds and hearts with the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. All that you and I are in Christ. You get this? So four through six is all about for Christ. We're going to get to some for Christ stuff. But before we get there, Paul is just urging us to be people that are rooted in Christ. How rooted are you this morning? 
in your identity in Christ? How rooted are you this morning in the gospel? How distracted maybe are you in your own activity? And this morning we want to just be rooted in what Jesus has accomplished. Amen? Now, that, again, this section here, verses 7 through 14 that we read, is where Paul is unpacking what it means to be in Christ. And here's the big idea. Go ahead and jot this down in your notes. Paul in this section is talking about riches that we have in Christ. This is really fun. I love sermons like this where I just get to report good news. I'm just like, here's what's awesome about the Lord and Jesus and the gospel. We just get to sit here and be like, thank you, God. Like, that's what we contribute to our Christian faith. We're like, thank you. That's what we bring to the table. Uh, last week, we talked about blessing in Christ. This big idea that, that Jesus took on the curse of sin so that we could be secure in God's blessing, so that we could live from blessing. And Paul has continued to unpack this idea, but when he gets to verse 7 through 14, the verses that David read to us, Paul is unpacking this concept of, you see it there in verse 7, Paul talks about the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. Now, like, without even reading the Bible, I think some basic theology would lead us to understand that God possesses stuff, <laughs> that God is wealthy. Um, everything that we have in life, the world itself, the breath in our lungs, the Bible even says every good and perfect gift ultimately comes from God who owns it all and gives it all out of an act of grace and mercy. Um, this is something that scripture is often depicting about God, that God, when he revealed himself to Moses, he said this, he said, I, what, I, I am, that I am. I, I, God is self-sufficient. Um, the Lord has never needed anything. Isn't that crazy to think? Like, God has never been in a place of lack where he's like, man, I just need some sleep, man. My three kids, vacation, vacation, <laughs> that's funny. Um, I just need some rest, man. I need some caffeine. I need some, I need, now, all of us, this, this is what makes us a part of the community of humanity. We're, um, this is the fellowship of the needy, amen? We are just in need all the time of, of more than what we have in and of ourselves, and especially spiritually, but that's not true with God. God is rich. He's, he's, he's abundant in life. Um, but what Paul is talking about here is this idea that his riches in Christ, listen to this, have met, we could say it this way, our bankruptcy. His riches in Jesus, here's what's happened for you and me, God's riches have collided with your bankruptcy. In fact, this is the gospel, the grace of God. This is what, what God has done, has come to do for those who are in him. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe today you don't know the message of the gospel. You don't know the grace of Jesus. And let, let me just create a moment here where scripture can just speak to you about what the gospel is and what the good news of Jesus is. The grace of Jesus, the message of Christianity is that though Jesus was rich, the Bible says that he was in the form of God at the right hand of the Father, not in need of anything, but compelled by love, yet for your sakes and my sake, Jesus became poor. I mean, literally, Jesus became poor. Jesus wasn't building his earthly mansion, right, next to Pilate or around some Roman hill. Jesus took on both physical poverty, but ultimately we know that on the cross, Jesus took on spiritual poverty. The Bible says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on the cross. That's what Jesus became on the cross. He, he, he wasn't guilty of sin, but he was treated like you and me, 
as a bankrupt sinner so that you and I, through his poverty, notice this, might become rich. This is the great exchange of the gospel. You see, Scripture teaches a hard truth about our condition, that we are we're impoverished spiritually. That, that when we come to God with our best moral attributes and our best moral achievements and whatever kind of thing that we bring before God, he, he's not impressed by what's in our hands. Like, wow, you know what? You, I, this is kind of how we live, where we give special favoritism to people that have currency or money. We're like, okay, let me give you some special... The Bible teaches that we all come before God the same way, empty-handed, truly, because of sin. There's a, there's a bankruptcy of heart before him. And there's no way for us to pay our way out of bankruptcy with him. There, there's no way to earn our way back to him. The only hope that we have is if God in his mercy and grace, if he would trade places with us, take on our bankruptcy in order that we might be beneficiaries of his wealth. Is this making sense? So, so this is what the gospel proclaims. Jesus himself said that this is how we enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said this. In Matthew 5.3, Jesus said, Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. This is why the people that were the most religious in Jesus' day, according to Jesus, the most religious people among Jesus were the farthest from the kingdom, weren't they? Because they saw themselves as rich in spirituality. Look at me. Look at all the things I've done. Look at all my accomplishments. Look, how, look at my altruism. Look at my fill in the blank. Look at my law keeping. Look at all the things that I do. And it was very external, right? And Jesus came for the heart. And Jesus knew that in the heart of man, there's a brokenness there. And so, so I love this. Like, maybe you're here today, and this is like, I think this is fading in our generation, but there has been this like mindset of, of the world in approaching the church where the mindset is like, I could never come to, I could never come to Jesus because I'm not like them. You ever felt that way? I'm not spiritual like them. I don't have what they have. And I love that the Bible says to you that you have actually in that statement exactly what you need to come to Jesus, which is a recognition, listen, of your need for him. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, the only thing necessary, the only thing that we need to be saved is need. That's all we need is need. Is acknowledgement that Jesus, I come to you poor in spirit. And here's the promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come to God destitute as they are, recognizing their need for him, recognizing they could never pay their way to him with good works. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs are the riches of God, the riches of grace. This is, again, the gospel. Because Jesus became poverty, spiritually speaking, so that we who were stuck in our bankrupt condition could, and I love this again, could receive the riches of his grace. I mean, this is awesome. I, I love that in this section, Paul is speaking to Christians. I think first he's speaking to non-Christians saying, listen, come as you are with empty hands and let Jesus pour out his love and grace upon you and be saved and receive. That's what you got to do. You got to receive his grace and his love and, and the good news of his cross. But Paul's also speaking to believers in Jesus, and he's trying to sure them up with some confidence in regards to who they are. And listen, what they have, what we have. And we talked a little about this last week, how there's a tendency for us to live, you know, as those who have abundant blessings, we can live with a scarcity mindset, like I never have enough rather than knowing what, what I have in Jesus. And here, Paul is, is communicating that same idea, but he's using these financial terms. It's really cool. Like, 
I started by saying it's the Apostle Paul, who's a little bit more like the like Pastor Paul, but really, Ephesians 1 shows banker Paul. Bank of Ephesus, Paul, okay? Pa- Paul is, is in this section, it's like Ephesians 1, 7 through 14. Paul is a banker, and this section here, listen to what it is, it's your bank statement. I just got a little anxiety thinking about that phrase. Anybody else? Like, bank statements, oh my gosh. Come to church, get reminded about my bank statement. Now, listen, there's no room for discouragement here in Ephesians 1 over your spiritual bank statement. And Paul is, is, is seeking to, to sure Christians up in their confidence by being like, look at, look at all that you have in Jesus. Look at the gospel, and as you reflect on what Jesus has done, let confidence fill your soul as you observe what you have in him. Wow, look at these riches. I mean, that's the language. All the riches that we have in Christ. Now, when you look at this bank statement in this section, here are the four things that Paul unpacks as he's kind of going through, as he's the banker, and he's helping these Christians understand so they can live from a confidence of what they have. He's like, here's what you have. Here's the riches you have in Jesus. You have the riches of redemption. You've been redeemed. You have the riches of revelation. You have the treasure of the knowledge of God in truth. You have the riches of reservation. You have an inheritance reserved in heaven. You have that in Jesus. And lastly, you have the riches of resurrection. You have the same resurrection power that brought Jesus from the dead alive in you. Paul is like getting these Christians to just simply observe all that they have in Jesus so that they can stop striving for what they've already received. Do you hear that? So that they can stop striving for what they've already received. And I'm telling you, I'm I'm, I'm just going to believe this over us and speak this over this. When we as a people shift our mindset in this and we stop living towards and we start living from the gospel, things will change. Things will change in our hearts. Things will change in our lives, our families. Things will change in our church when the gospel is informing the truth about our lives and not anything else. Let's look at these. First, he talks about the riches of redemption. The riches of redemption. Paul is is speaking about the first almost line item on this bank statement for those who are in Christ. And, And he's talking about our salvation through the lens of this word redemption. He says in verse 7 and 8, in Jesus, in him, there's that phrase. Again, it's going to be used 10 times in this passage. The first thing we have in Jesus is we have, I love that, that possessive claim that you can make. You have redemption. You have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins. Here's what we have. According to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This comes from the wisdom of the mind of God himself, the infinite wisdom of God, who in his wisdom looked on at your life and said, they're going to have redemption. That's what they're going to have. They're going to have more than their sin. They're going to have more than their brokenness. They're going to have more than their debt before me. They're going to have redemption. This is the wisdom of God over your and my life. Now, a couple of big words here, classic theological Bible words. The first word there, redemption, something that we should be confident in having because scripture says we have it in Jesus. Um, And I want to say the key phrase here is not like you have to be in Jesus to have this. This is really important. Like knowing the qualifiers of the gospel, the good news of the gospel flooding your life 
is, is huge for understanding what, what someone has or someone doesn't have. But someone who is in Christ, you have redemption. The word redemption, most times it can be used to just describe something that's bought back. When you buy something back, you've redeemed it. You redeem a gift card or you redeem something online, a coupon code. All right? I know you guys like to get those coupon codes. You Google free coupon code. Did I just out myself as someone that does that? Okay. Um, but here, the word redemption is so specific. It's so poetic. It's so charged with, with meaning, especially in that culture. Because the word here literally means to, um, to ransom somebody. In some translations, it says we have, we have ransoming. We've been ransomed by his blood. Uh, and, and the idea here of re- redemption or the word r- ransom that we have in Jesus, it's a picture of us being purchased or bought out of our slavery. I mean, think of like a simple picture of this is the redeeming love of Hosea in the Old Testament, right? We know the story of Hosea, who God called to pursue his unfaithful wife, Gomer, who had a bad lot in life because her name was Gomer, first of all. But the second thing, (laughs) no offense if that's your name, but um, I think it's a great name, actually. Um, But Gomi, she had a problem. This, this relationship between Hosea and, and Gomer was supposed to be a picture of the, the covenant faithfulness of God towards his people. So God told Hosea, I want you to, I want you to marry that prostitute. I want you to, to pursue her in love. And she's going to be perpetually unfaithful to you. And this is what ends up happening. No matter what happens to her, I want you to continue to pursue her to the extent that when her sin leads her into literal sex slavery. That's what happens to Gomer. And she's now owned by someone else. God says, Hosea, I want you to buy her back. And everyone around you is going to look on at you and say, that looks like reckless love. (laughs) And I want you to turn to the people and say, that is how the Lord has loved you. Despite your unfaithfulness, he has redeemed you. Even when you were in slavery, God has set you free from Egypt. And, he's, and listen, he's continuing to do that still to this day. People who are bound by sin and death, this is our condition, are set free through Jesus. And I just want you to hear this this morning. If you are in Christ, listen. Don't allow the enemy to uplift your slavery as the end of the story. You have redemption. You have as much redemption as Jesus' blood was shed. And his blood was shed. In fact, that's the payment that was made for our redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. We know this is the story of the scripture in history. But this is our redemption. This is the good news of the gospel. The situation itself, apart from this good news, is a sad story where we as humanity were created to live freely in relationship with God, but through the captivity of sin, we've become bound and separated from him. And and oftentimes, this is what slavery is. You owe a debt, and because you can't pay it, you're enslaved. And, And that is your lot in life, and this is the human condition, slavery to sin 
and death, the only way out is to have a kinsman redeemer who could come to pay the ransom, to purchase you out of that sin. And that's what Jesus has done through his blood. That's the good news of the gospel. Here's what Peter says. Peter says, knowing this, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received from tra- by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is what God has done for those who are in Christ. He has redeemed us by his blood. Shed his blood for you and I to claim redemption this morning. Anybody need to just be confident in that this morning? Like in your heart, you just gotta claim redemption. That your sin is not the end of the story in Jesus. Now notice the next part of this. That redemption involves also, this is so cool, the forgiveness of sins. I love that, according to the riches of his grace. The picture there is that the debt that we held in our sin before God that led us to slavery was a debt that we could never pay on our own. The message of the gospel is not that God has given us a loan. Here, here's some grace. And if you spend the rest of your life cleaning up your act, you'll pay it off. No, 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 it's a message of grace that Jesus himself takes on our sin. He took on our debt so that we could receive his riches. This is the gospel. You know the classic saying, don't you? He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could never pay. But through Jesus, I love this. We have redemption through his blood. I love this, the forgiveness of sins. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why, uh, this is what the Psalms say. The Psalms say that, that the people of God should be the happiest people on earth. You should be happier than you are. Your sins are forgiven. You should be the happiest person on earth because your sins are more forgiven than anyone else on earth. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is what that literally means. Whose sin is covered. I love this. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The phrase there, impute iniquity, literally means he doesn't credit it to your account. If you are in Jesus, you are covered in the righteousness of his glory. You are covered in the the spotlessness of his perfection. And when he looks at you in Christ, he doesn't see a slave to sin. He sees a son. He sees a daughter. He sees someone who's redeemed and forgiven. He doesn't charge your sin to you because it was charged to Jesus in full. This is the good news of Jesus. And I want you to remember, he does this. This is so important, isn't it? It's according to the riches of his grace. It's just grace. He doesn't save us. This is a key word here, like, The good news is that God hasn't dealt with us according to the riches of his justice, which God is, in a holy, perfect way, fair and just. And there is a day coming where God will make every wrong right, and he will execute justice on this world. At the end of the day, no one will get away with anything. You will either be forgiven of your sins, and it gets put on Jesus, or you will suffer the consequence of your sins. So so God is is just, but check this out. The ark door is wide open for salvation in Jesus in the time that we're in. And and Jesus says, I've got grace to shower on you. Like, man, um, I'm just needing to remember this this morning, that God doesn't deal with me according to his justice, which is what I deserve. Aren't you glad? 
Aren't you glad that God, I mean, and he's merciful to everyone. The Bible says that he's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. I mean, justice would have been, Adam and Eve, you're done. Goodbye. Eternally separated forever. Now, he doesn't even deal with us, it says it here, he doesn't just deal with us in mercy either. This is important, right? Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I'm way too merciful with my kids. I should be, I should be um, more just, I should say. And there's times where I'm just like, mercy, okay. Walk away from me, okay? God bless you, okay? Grace. Grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you could never deserve. So I, I love the way to think about it like this. It's like, how do I understand justice, mercy, and grace and the gospel and the riches of this? Okay, so um, if you ever got pulled over, I pray against that in Jesus' name, that you'd be able to evade every speed trap in Jesus' name. But, or that you wouldn't speed, okay? But I'd be a hypocrite to say that. So um, you get pulled over, justice, we know justice. Justice is you get the consequence of your crime. You get the ticket. Here's the ticket. Mercy is you get a ticket, but you ever got one of these? The warning. You beat your eyes at the cop, and he's like, here you go. Here's your, I've never done that, but here's your, here's your warning. Here's some mercy. You deserve a consequence, but I, I'm going to show mercy. Here's grace. Grace is you get pulled over, and the cop comes, and he says, I have a ticket for you to the Super Bowl. Why? Well, that car over there saw you pulled over, and they paid for this ticket for you. Do you see this? This is grace. Grace is, is listen, you, you don't come to the table going, God, help. No, he just goes, it's my love upon you. Grace is unmerited favor. Some of us, we have a justice mindset in our relationship with God, and you're, you're just always in your mindset of, if I did that. No, no, it's all grace. I love that he says this. He made his grace, what, abound toward us. Isn't that good news? He doesn't just shower partial blessing here or there. He, he, he pours out his grace upon us. Here's the way that, that Romans says it. It says that where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds much more. This is the riches of redemption. The riches of redemption in Jesus. So this morning, here's what some of us need to do. We need to sit here before God and just speak over our lives and say, I have redemption in Jesus. I have redemption. I know my bankruptcy without him. Ask my wife. She knows my sin without, without him. I mean, this is, this is the reality of our condition. But we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Rejoice today. Your sins are forgiven. Eternally forgiven. It's a great place for an amen. I mean, but, yeah. I'm just saying it's a good place. That's all I'm saying. It's a good place for an amen. I'm not going to compel you, but thank you, Jimmy. Write this next one down. We have the riches of redemption, but Paul then speaks to the riches of revelation. We've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. We're saved through the blood of Jesus. There's only one name under heaven and earth by which man can be saved, and that's the cross in the name of Jesus. And those who are in Christ, we have more than just the good news of our sins being forgiven. We have more than the fact that we're bought out of slavery, adopted as sons and daughters, forgiven eternally. That's good news. But we also have in Jesus, we have the great treasure and riches of Revelation, 
revelation. Let me unpack this a little bit. In verse 9 and 10, Paul is, is this is one long run-on sentence, and he's saying, you've been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us in his own wisdom. That was his own idea to do that. That wasn't your idea to save you by grace. It's his idea to save you by grace. And, and in this salvation, we're those to whom God has made known to us. This is great. The mystery of his will. According to the good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, meaning it, it pleased him to do this for you and me. And then he talks about this mystery that's been revealed, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times throughout history, God had a plan from eternity past to gather together in one all things in Christ. It was never just meant to be the Jewish people. The vision that God had for Abraham was that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. In the Hebrew, it says, even those in Boca Raton, Florida. That's what it says. No, it doesn't. But he's, listen, that's his vision. That's his vision. It's for all people. Because when God sees humanity, he sees one race made in his image, created for his glory, but, but marred by sin. And then when God sees his church, he sees a new race, a new humanity of people who have been gathered together through the cross of Jesus. It's what's so beautiful about the church. The church is not a social club where we allow certain people in and certain people out. Hey, we only do this color of person here, or we only do this kind of personality here, or this kind of church background. Or here's a big one. We only allow this kind of brokenness here. See, see the cross is not this symbol that we kind of lean on with our arm as we're sinners, but, you know, I've been saved from my sin. I've got some sin, okay? But Jesus saved me, and you're kind of like, come here, man, check this out, you know? What are, what's your sin problem? Okay, whoa, buddy, come on. Like, no, the cross is a symbol that we kneel before humbly, and we say, come here, there's room for everyone. Just come kneel with me before Jesus. This is why the church should be the safest place on earth for people to bring their brokenness to find redemption. What gospel have we preached that people are hiding their brokenness? What kind of cultures do we have where people are afraid to be who they really are out of fear of condemnation? Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. You'll find my grace. You'll, there's, there's nothing better than the freedom that's on the other side of finding the grace of Jesus. And he invites you into that. This has been his plan from the beginning, to bring all people together in one. This beautiful display of, the, of, of his glory through a messy, broken humanity. Now, what I love about this is Paul is saying that there's a treasure in this for the Christian. Okay, This has been God's plan from the beginning. That's kind of a theme of Ephesians, is God has had a plan. And those who are in Jesus, we know his plan of salvation for all of humanity. Contrary to the, the Jewish people that had a very nationalistic, uh, you know, um, ethnic understanding of salvation, you had to become a Jew and be a Jewish person, there's a whole new plan. Now, the word that's used for this plan that God had to save the whole world is the word of mystery. That's what's a, it's a really interesting word. Um, God's made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, when we use the word mystery, we think of Scooby-Doo and Shaggy, okay? And we think of, j just me? Come on. That mystery machine, bro? Come on. All right? When we think of a mystery, we think of something difficult to understand. That through enough ingenuity, it, it will be solved and figured out. Like, 
I'm this way with every movie I see. I'm kind of annoying because I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going to happen before it happens, and I'm calling it. My wife is actually really good at this, too. She'll be, I'll be like, how did you know? And I'm like, oh, she has Wikipedia open. Okay. But <laughs> that's not what this word means. The mystery of God's will, God's plan. Like, let me say it this way, too. The truth about God, whatever truth that is, whatever is contained in that, is not something that is figured out. We don't figure God out. How many religions have been started because it's like, hey, I figured God out. Here's my new book. How many worldviews are, are, are rooted in human wisdom and human thinking? No, no, no. The, the word mystery here, it means something secret. That's literally what this word means. A secret that, that will wholly remain hidden and unknowable unless revealed. That's the word here. Different. It's not something difficult to understand that can be figured out if you think hard and long enough. The word mystery here is something that's hidden that can only be known if, if it's revealed. And what Paul is proclaiming here about God has been called the most important doctrine for humanity. That's a pretty bold statement. And maybe that's somewhat subjective. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to park in that. For a second here, because I think there's some truth to this. The most important doctrine for you and me is the doctrine of revelation. It's the most important doctrine for us. Revelation literally means to reveal. So, so in a practical sense, like the only way we could ever know anything about God is if he were willing to reveal himself. This is the only way you or I could have any confidence in our knowledge of God. So many people have reduced their knowledge of God to their imagination specula uh, speculation. But how many of us know that's like a horrible way to have a relationship with anyone? I do that all the time, too. I'm like, I'm just going to imagine what you're like because of this action. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, or, what's, or you ever had this happen? Somebody told you? And you're like, you see them? You're like, there they are. Okay. Got my speculations have you ever had this happen where, like, you got to know that person and they were revealed to be someone completely different? It's kind of what it's like to get to know God. See, see, this is how we get to know someone. Maybe you've also had this happen where, like, you've been wanting to get to know someone, but they just, they have their, their cards very close to their chest. You, you can only really know someone as much as they're willing to disclose who they are. Humans are at the mercy of God's self-disclosure. We're at the mercy of God's revelation. And from start to finish, what the scriptures scream is this, God desires to reveal himself. How do we know someone? We know them through their words. When they speak, we get an insight into their heart. This, that's what the Bible is, by the way. It, the Bible starts with God speaking. Just with this posture of, I want you to know who, you, who I am. I don't want you to live with speculation about me. I don't, I don't want you to reduce your understanding to your imagination. Here's the greatest news of all. You can live from my revelation of who I am. And, and the scriptures say this in Hebrews 1, that God throughout history has revealed himself in so many different ways. Like in, the, in general revelation, God has revealed himself through creation. But, but it all comes to head in special revelation where God reveals himself how intimately, can't get more intimate than this, God 
enters the story. Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the revelation of God in person. No man has seen God at any time, but we have seen Jesus who has proclaimed the Father. Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. Jesus is the revelation of God through which we understand who God is and what he's like. And this is, um, this is what Paul is saying for those who are in Christ, that you, as a Christian now, listen, you've been set free from your own ideas of God that you tend to still live in. And you've been set free to the truth of God. Does that make sense? Because he has made his own will known to us. And so this is what Paul even proclaims. We'll move on to the next point here. But Paul proclaims this. He says, do not be conformed to this world in your thinking and what you know about God and life. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As Christians, we live as those who have received revelation. We live from revelation. That's how we live into the will of God. Later in Ephesians, Paul will say, don't be ignorant, but know God's will. And so we're called to this, and this is a treasure. It's the riches of revelation. Look at this reference. I've got to give you one more here. Paul says this for us in Christ, that we would attain, this is beautiful, Colossians 2, that we would attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, but both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you could ever need to know about your life and God himself is found in the person of Jesus. It's found in his self-revelation of his scripture. I would access that treasure chest as much as you possibly can. Let's go to this next one, the riches of reservation. Flight attendants, please prepare the cabin for our initial descent. We're making our way down, okay? <laughs> the riches of reservation. This is so good. We're in Jesus and in Jesus, we have riches in him. We have the riches of, re of redemption. We're, we have the riches of his revelation. We don't have to live with speculation. We know who he is. He's revealed himself to you and I. We need to study to know that in truth. But we also have more than that. Notice this. In him, we have also. I love that word also. It just keeps building. We've obtained as adopted sons and daughters. I have good news for you. I don't know who your mom or dad is, but if you are in Christ, I could tell you who your dad is. It's God the Father, and in him you have an inheritance. Notice this, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's a loaded statement. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So Paul says that in Jesus you also have access to the riches of an inheritance. I, I called it a reservation because Peter says in 1 Peter that we've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that's reserved in heaven for us. I love that. Um, and, and it's all through, and we'll come back to that, but it's all through, this is really profound, the predetermined will of God. Now, we talked about last week that when Paul is talking about God's predetermined will for humanity in the world, he's not seeking to present a theological conundrum where, he, where the church at Ephesus, Paul's not trying to throw lob a theological grenade in this church for them to be like, I don't know what I believe. Did I choose God or did he choose me? It's like, yes, you know. The Bible's teaching about God's sovereignty and predestination and election and selection and choice of humanity, it, for the Christian is meant to simply be an encouragement 
Like, this is not just supposed to go to your head where you, you kind of, what's that meme where the guy, it's like all the symbols, you know? You know what I mean? This is meant to be something that goes straight to the depths of your heart that lifts you up to, to, to listen, to encourage you with the fact that you didn't, listen, it wasn't your idea for you to have an inheritance in Jesus. It was his idea for you to inherit his blessing. His, so that means it's not your idea to, like, I want to change that. I, am I gonna, no, no, it's his plan. So scripture, let me back up. Scripture depicts God all throughout the Bible. God is depicted this way that Paul is proclaiming him as, listen, sovereign. He's sovereign. Um, you, you can't get away from that. You can't get around that. In fact, you can't have God without sovereignty. God has to be outside of space and time. The, the Bible doesn't show God as someone who is just kind of watching the goings forth of man and the ways of this world in a kind of reactive sense, like, oh, gosh, oh, I didn't see that coming. Okay, oh, they're president? Uh-oh. You know, like, that's not, that's not how, how the scriptures depict God. The, the scriptures depict God as, though he does at times, we'll see him intervene with the, with the things of life in a, in a very interesting way with Moses in the Old Testament. You, you do see that God also is observing the, the, the will of man. But ultimately, over it all, you, you see a God in scripture who is sovereign, um, as Paul says, like, let's just let the Bible speak, right? He's someone who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Isn't that interesting? First of all, there's an eternal counsel. That's awesome. And it's a counsel of infinite wisdom. C.S. Lewis describes this of, a, of an airline pilot who's crashing in the Atlantic and that airline pilot has a few seconds to, to, to pray, God, save me. But God has more than a few seconds to answer that prayer. God has eternity of wisdom to work all things according to the counsel of his will. There's a lot of great mystery to this. I think a lot of people abuse this to excuse suffering and sin. I've seen people who are in tremendous grief and pain and sorrow just be told, hey, God's sovereign. It's like, well, aren't you missing some Bible verses there? Well, my mom passed away, like, hey, God is going to work this together for good. I'm like, I don't want to know that verse right now. No, listen, don't hear me out, okay? I've clung to that verse, and I've seen what God can do. But, but the scriptures don't allow God's sovereignty to sort of um, allow us to become desensitized to pain and suffering. And, and so sometimes, sometimes the right move is to express the heart of God in that moment. And say, you know, the scriptures say rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And, and the scriptures say that God is near to the brokenhearted. And the scriptures say that God is, is light and in him is no darkness at all. And he doesn't will evil into existence. But the beauty over all that is God is sovereign still. Here's the message of, of the Bible. Ready? Um, God is able to take even the worst brokenness. This is the good news. And use it for good. It's not to say, hey, brokenness. It's okay. God uses that for good. That's not how that's supposed to be said. It's Whatever pain or suffering you've experienced, surrender your trust to the fact that God is not overcome by this, and he's going to use it. He can use it. I mean, all throughout the Bible, you see God is sovereign over these things. He's sovereign over the affairs of life. He's sovereign over, the scriptures describe in Proverbs that God is even sovereign over random things that happen. He's sovereign over nature. Jesus said a bird won't even fall from the sky apart from the Father's will. He's sovereign over your and my plans? That's good news, right? Aren't you glad that you're not the, your own shepherd leading yourself in your best attempt to pass of righteousness for his namesake? 
He's your shepherd. He's sovereign and he's good. And he's sovereign even to the extent that he he's led us to have an inheritance in him. He's even sovereign over your salvation. In music theory, I'm, I'm obviously qualified to talk about this. It's called a passing note. Jimmy winked at me. So, so a really, a really well-trained pianist is able to take a mistake on the piano and make it sound beautiful. This is sovereignty. God takes our mistakes, our sins, the brokenness of this world. Listen, He uses our worst experiences as passing notes, and He makes it something beautiful. This is what Paul is saying. This is all led up to you and I having this beautiful inheritance in Him. That despite all that's happened, listen, it's not a wage. It's an inheritance. Your inheritance in Christ is not something you earn. It's something you receive. It's something that's promised to you. I wish I could say so much more about this, but hey, it's just good news. You have the eternal hope of riches in heaven. This last one we'll close with is the riches of resurrection. We have the riches of redemption. We have the riches of revelation. We have the riches of reservation even through God's sovereignty, leading us to be a people that have eternal hope. We have an inheritance in heaven. But, but then Paul speaks to this present reality of resurrection that, that holds together this tension that we live in called the already not yet kingdom. You ever heard that phrase? Already not yet, that's okay. So the already not yet kingdom is this reality that in Jesus, you have all these incredible promises, yet in Jesus... There's still more to come because we're still in a broken world that God is restoring and redeeming. There's a day coming where you're going to cash in on, you're going to be able to cash in on every promise of God. The Bible says there's a day coming where we're going to see him face to face. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest and we're going to find reward and blessing through Jesus. That day's coming. Revelation says it's a day with no sorrow, no pain, no tears. But not yet. You know that tension, right? The gospel is true over our lives. It's already here, but it's also not yet. We live in this tension of, of struggle, of this flesh, of this world, of this fight. And so I love what Paul closes with. And Jimmy and the band can come up for this closing moment. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So I, I love, by the way, that there's sovereignty and responsibility here. You, you, have, to tr- you have to trust in Jesus to be saved. In whom, having believed, I love this, you were in Christ sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. This is so good. Until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of his glory. So in theology, this is called glorification. The day coming where you and I will see Jesus face to face, whether through our going or his coming, glorification is coming where we will experience the full redemption of what he's purchased for us. That day's coming. Now here in the meantime, I love this. God has given you a guarantee of what's coming. You ever thought about this? And the word there, guarantee, is literally a down payment. That's literally what it means in the Greek. It's a pledge. I rented a car last week, and I had to give a down payment that, you know, would cost me if I drove that car to Canada or something, you know? thought about it a couple times actually but that down payment 
is an early sign of what's to come. And I love this. The Bible says that, that we haven't cashed in on everything yet. Like, we're still in these, in these bodies. We're still in this world. We're still suffering. There's still challenges. There's weaknesses. We face our limitations every day. But in the meantime, until you receive that ending hope, I love this. You've been given the Holy Spirit here and now. The Holy Spirit as a down payment of what's to come. God saw your condition and he said, I, I, I have so much for you and here in the meantime, here's my spirit. Jesus said the helper would come upon you and I. He would fill us, he would empower us to live the lives we all want to live. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the down payment of what's to come. And I don't think this is just for us, I think this is for the world around us. And they see heaven in our lives and they're like, what, what is this? And we go, oh, this is a preview. The love, the joy, the peace, this is the kingdom of God. This is the riches of resurrection, which is not just for the last day, but it's also for today. Jesus sees your life as needing his spirit. He gifts you his spirit in full. He pours out his spirit upon you. He's, I love this. He seals you with his spirit. Isn't that good? Unbreakable seal. You belong to God forever. It's a symbol of authority and ownership. And you live now as someone who's not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Living from the riches of what God has accomplished for all of us. Amen.